Hey guys, welcome to episode 6 of the Posting and Toasting Show. Drew's here. Um, Schwinn isn't, unfortunately. He had some uh, personal matters to attend, so send your uh, your thoughts and prayers to Schwinn when, uh, when you get a chance. But, to, not a problem. It'll be okay. The show must go on. And I have a very special guest with me today to uh, take Schwinn's co-hosting duties. It's um, probably my... Favorite writer of all the posting and toasting uh, guys. He's definitely our best writer. He is the best of us. And you guys know him as Matthew Miranda. I know him as the professor. Professor, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here. So I can't wait to talk to you about so much about things. But what we're going to talk about in today's episode is very self-indulgent. We're going to talk about NBA writing. Because the other um, week, I don't know, maybe like two weeks ago, it could have been a month ago, I, I kind of lose track of time. Um, my beloved professor, he had an existential crisis on Twitter. Um, he was getting tired of writing. He doesn't like the way um, – I, I, I'm going to paraphrase you, but you can obviously you know step in and correct me anytime. You're just – you're losing kind of like that desire, that burning desire to actually write about the um, – not just Knicks, but like basketball in general – um, you don't kind of like the way like hot take culture is kind of taken over, and it is, and it's kind of almost like sullied your desire to like write. Did I, did I capture that correctly, or do you want to expand on that a little bit? I think that's some of it, but I think um, I think especially that day in particular, and it it, it happens, um, and I don't know if this is like I don't know if this is personal. I don't know if this is like something that people feel like industry wide, but it, there was a day where um, I wrote some piece that came out and I, I asked a question. It was a, it was a mailbag question about um, starting lineups. Like who would, who would be your starting lineup for the next on like, I, I assumed opening night. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know how it is at posting and toasting. Like you're just, it's, it's a Nick intensive conversation, but it's also kind of laid back or, or, you know, multifaceted. It's, it's never just mm-hmm. about like the basketball. So what I'm finding that I think is, is symptomatic of the larger thing is I'm exhausted from the amount of energy and time that I'll invest in, in, in creating something for people just to enjoy at some point. And there's a there's an outside life that's like a reality. Most people, most people that you are that you are reading, particularly on a site like SV Nation, like they probably aren't doing that for a living. Um, like some of them are, but most of them are not. So when you put your time and energy that you don't really have a lot left over from into putting it out there, just to like you know, have some fun with it and keep a conversation going. And like, and I know comment sections are not places where people necessarily <laughs> invest, like, you know, their most, their, their, their deep, bared, thoughtful ideas. But when like you very quickly get like a dismissive answer that suggests like you're a fucking idiot and you clearly like, like <laughs> the fact that you don't want to run Kevin Knox, like out of town on the rails, indicates like a deeper personal problem with you. Like I sometimes just 
So that magnified across a lot of other symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you said a hot take culture, and like I think that is certainly a large part of it in the idea that like, and I think this is the inherent tension. Like, how do you, as a as a writer who enjoys doing this and who presumably like your nature is, you want to write more. Like all of us, if if something, if the opportunity presented itself, particularly with compensation involved, like to write more about this, you would. But how do you balance that inherent tension between like I want to produce all this content and share it and have feedback and conversation and the understanding that like we talk about this too much anyway. Like, I think we all know it. There's more access and opportunity and like we indulge in it, but like, I don't think we're having this. I think we're having more educated conversations, but I don't know if we're having more satisfying conversations. And if you feel like I don't want to write something just to provoke a response, I want to write something because I think it's worth sharing um, but then that means necessarily speaking less than, you know, what is your identity in this field where the, the, the driving forces say something. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, especially now because we're recording a podcast in the middle of August, which is a basketball podcast and like yeah. the dead of the season and we're here like still producing content. Um, you really do bring an interesting point, which I kind of want to even respond to, because it's interesting, because, like, NBA writing definitely has gotten smarter over the years in terms of easier access to data, because we have tons of stats now, because we have, like, basketball reference. NBA stats now has improved so many different things. We have really smart math people producing content on, like, Nylon Calculus, who are coming up with this. Tons of different, like, metrics and ways to actually, like, measure the game uh, quantifiably. And then we also have, like, now access to all these different, like, clips also from, like, NBA.com of, like, being able to actually, like, watch and break down film. We have people who used to, like, work with teams and kind of, like, for showing us, like, all right, this is actually what, you know, like, the triangle offense looks like. This is what, um, you know, what a Spain pick and roll is and stuff. So we definitely have a lot more people doing it. But you're right that, like, it does – I'm not entirely sure that these conversations are actually even better despite, like, the writing being – more informative, like, there isn't any, like, substance, I would say, that goes into it other than that. It's just more of, like, oh, yes, I agree with it, or no, you're wrong, and that's not correct. And it's, it's really, it's almost, re- it's really unfortunate now that we've got to a place where there's only so much to, there's only so much now to actually explore, like, in a serious fashion, and mm-hmm. there is a lot of dismissal about it. It's, I, I don't know where it goes from, uh, from here, moving uh, moving forward, where do you, where do you think that we can actually like almost like improve writing, or can we even actually improve in a in a writing field that actually I would say actually has a ceiling creatively? I feel like the extremes at each end are going to become more pronounced, um, and so it's a it's a question of which which end is going to you know gain more access. I think the best writing is going to keep getting better because by definition, the void that it's filling is going to be larger. So the people who are doing great work, it's going to be that much more appreciated. But there's still, we have not hit the bottom as far as appetite for content. Like, I can't tell you how many times in a day, like, it's like early afternoon, and I'm mildly irritated because I've read every basketball article that I think I can find. And Like, I don't, I don't know everything out there, but, like, I'll get through everything and I'll sit, and there's this sense of, like, it really is a sense of like, where is 
the content that I require, um, mm-hmm. and you have to go like digging around for it. I I wonder about um, as far as where it's headed. There was a there was a tweet that came out today. Somebody tweeted that James. Oh, I think it was Maury that James Harden is a better scorer than Michael Jordan. And <laughs> yeah, he's been, question, he's been saying that for a while. Yeah. So you know, consider the source. But what struck me on Twitter was, of course, um, all the in particular the Harden fans who came out with their lined up numerical. Like, if you if you take their top five seasons and you use all these advanced stats. And, like, I'm not really interested in the question of whether Harden is better than Jordan because I, I, I think it's a matter – I think as clear as these things can seem, it is a matter of opinion. Um, for me to be sure Michael Jordan is better than Oscar Robertson is absurd, given that I never saw Oscar Robertson play. So, like, whatever that's worth. But what's interesting to me, and I think what gets to your question about, like, where is this headed on the good end and the bad end, is um, – Someone in response to that had had written that had written who like the top five two guards were in history, and they all happened to be from like the eighties and later. And it struck me that like it's obvious when you see that kind of recency bias, like in a big picture sense. But uh, so like you know NBA history doesn't begin till the eighties for almost like any of us. But what mm-hmm. it makes me wonder about is like if we if we're at the point that we have so much comfort and information that we can legitimately entertain a question about James Harden versus Michael Jordan in an era where the defensive rules were completely different and worked against Jordan. And that doesn't even, you know, come up. Like, you wouldn't even, I I don't think you'd ask that question if you thought of that context. But what I'm struck by is, like, if we're able to miss that much in a big-picture sense because of of the preponderance of information we have now, what are we missing in the present day sense? that we are not even aware of and can't even see because we are drowning in all the information that we have, which does obviously bring things with it, but it's harder to recognize what you're losing. Um, and I'm really wondering, um, I think whatever that is that's being lost is going to infuse your your suggestion of, like, where is this going, positive or negative sense? I think that's going to fill both of those um, evolutions. It's almost like we're reaching a point just as writers, especially writers and like bloggers and stuff that we have this need to be what we're writing is trying to prove that we're correct about something and this need to be like, hey, this is my take. Here's all the evidence to support my take. My take is correct. And I do think that with all this information, we do lose sight of bigger picture information and Maybe it's just, just like you bring up so many interesting things and it's just like, part of me also thinks that with all this information, it's becoming the same article over and over again. And this is something I kind of, I, I kind of mentioned or I actually did mention with Schwinn and, uh, John Macri last week is that cause we all, not only do we have a lot of information, we all have the same information. And I find that that probably plays a part of it too. Like we all have access to NBA, you know, like I said, we all have access to basketball reference that has all the same data in it that like you, me or anyone else can access. NBA stats also has all this. So like all this publicly available data, we're almost coming to like these same conclusions. And with all this sanitation, we kind of get this homogenized version of what reality is supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be. And I don't know. There's, some of that and 
kind of like thinking about it too is I'm going to propose this question to you. And I believe this was brought up by one of our um, friends of the show and listeners, uh, AJ from VA. Um, how much uh, do you think the fact that most of the blogging world and most of the NBA writing world is primarily white guys? Like how much do you think that probably has a play in the role in terms in terms of like what's being created, what's being said and what's being used in terms of like content? Well, I think that that significance that like the editorial level and the publishing level is probably um, of enormous significance, even more, I think, than I, I assume that writing staffs even, and certainly I think the majority of NBA bloggers um, are probably white cis men, but um, I suspect that the, at the higher levels it's probably even more um, homogenous, and I think that's definitely going to have an impact. I also think um, something you just said that was a really interesting parallel when you mentioned how, and I, I agree with you, how there's a certain um, kind of template sometimes now as far as, like, you read an article and, like, yeah, we all have the same information and things begin to kind of sound, like, I'm struck that I can read something on the ringer and and you sometimes know, like, okay, the third paragraph, they're going to give me his war mm-hmm. and his defensive box. So in the fifth paragraph, we'll talk about, um, you know, like measurables. Like, you know it's coming. But what's interesting is that I think you're right, and it, it's interesting that a couple of years ago, I think it was 20, 2018 maybe, there was a point in Golden State's run of dominance, and, like, I love watching Golden State play. Like, I'm, I don't hate on them at all. I really enjoy them. But there was a point where their style of play became has reached a point of imitation where it was taking joy out of watching games to me, not because teams couldn't beat them, but because stylistically I felt like I'm, I was watching every team, I think because of Golden State's success in analytics, like pushing toward what, what, like what you would say is like the correct way to play. Like the three is greater than two, like way to play. And it's interesting to me that, the, the parallel of the coverage of the game potentially beginning to mirror the same uniformity that the game itself is demonstrating hmm. um, because analytics is not strictly a sports um, you know medium it affects all industries it affects you know everything now is quantified and measured and algorithms like I think it's interesting to see the you know the the media following what it's you know observing or maybe even absorbing. Yeah, and it's, what's even more interesting about the whole, like, almost like mirroring Golden State in the analytics, I feel like and it, this also parallels to writing as well as that. We, we see a lot of it with, like, Maureen the Rockets and this very analytical way to approach the game where it's just three-pointers and shots at the rim. And I think a lot of people, not only, um, like, Maureen and, like, Golden State, they're taking the wrong thing from what also made Golden State Great, like it wasn't just the fact that they're taking a lot of three pointers and they're making a lot of three pointers. Golden State was also a team that was very much like great at shots at the rim because shots at the rim is always like even statistically in the like in the analytics, like shots at the rim, free throws are always more valuable and you know a better like points per shot value than a three pointer and people kind of, like, lump that into, all right, we're just going to shoot more threes. It's almost like a mischaracterization and a misinterpretation of not only the analytics, but also, like, the what made Golden State successful. And trying to recreate what made Golden State successful isn't going to work because there's no other 
Steph Curry. There's no other Clay Thompson. There's no other like these guys that are making these incredible shots from long distance. Like it's it's not you, you can't produce it. And this kind of goes for like writing as well. Is again like I, I know I'm repeating a couple things that I did on the uh, the previous podcast. So sorry for you know regular listeners, but this point about like everyone I think is trying to do an imitation of Zach Lowe. So like Zach Lowe really was able to blend both film and stats and an ability to clearly define what's happening both on the court with the stats and everything. And now so many um, writers now on whether it's like SB Nation, fan cited, any of these websites, even like the Ringer as well, um, Bleacher Report, like they're doing their best Zach Lowe impression or they're trying to mimic Zach Lowe and it only gets like worse and worse. Um, because like no one's ever going to write like Zach Lowe, and mm-hmm. it, it it makes for worse content, and I don't, that's what I kind of see what's going on too. It's just like what made Zach Lowe great is almost like we're misinterpreting what made Zach Lowe great was like his, his ability to explain things, and if you can't explain things in the way that he did, you're doing a poor job of what's actually what actually made it successful. And that's what it kind of seems like I'm actually witnessing. Because like you said, like you can read The Ringer and you know what they're going to, you know what the argument is almost already just based on like the title and the the subtitle and everything. And I don't know. I think that's a really bad place because it's not a way to either expand um, conversations, expand different ways of thinking because it's almost like we have a right way to approach it. There's only one way to approach writing and analyzing the game, and if it's not this specific, you know, template, it's wrong and it's bad. And I don't think that's healthy for any sort of, not just, like, industry, but just almost like, you know, even if we want to think larger, like, it's not even healthy for, like, you know, a democracy or a country, this idea of, like, just limiting thought in that way. And I don't, like, and I keep repeating myself, but, like, I don't know where that goes. Like, I don't know what we can even do as, like, you and I, like, even as, like, writers, like, what do we even do to like even break that mold? Because it even seems like if we're doing something different, that's not really what the people want. So it's almost like, are we just going to be self-indulgent and write only what we want to write? And then what does that actually kind of do from there? I don't know how you assess, um, like how you would even go about assessing. Uh, I think generally if you write, what you know is ah, this is getting all okay. Um, <laughs> it's it's. I'm very struck throughout this whole conversation of how much this notion of the you know artificial correctness is, and all these and all these things. And I think of what you're saying, and I think about um, how much it does infiltrate more and more all aspects of the conversation. Like I'm really struck. A couple of a while ago, there was a, a posting on on, on PNT about um, who the oh that that mailbag question about who the starting lineup would be like. Again, this is obviously a matter of opinion, but I'm struck at the consensuses that have come up around really like even young inexperienced players because I think of what you were saying before about there's an expectation of like what it should look like, and mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily translating like we we go almost more by the 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 ideal and the reality so i was struck at how many people like their starting lineup like like they have franklin lakina in the starting lineup it's not that it's not that the opinion is is so outlandish 
the but it was the percentage of people who for whom that's a consensus and it's not because of anything you've seen him do it's because we know what he looks like he can be and and we think maybe should be and so you know the longer he's out there the quicker he gets to it and that's the thing that we're anticipating seeing so this consensus has built that like perform obviously there there are frank divides but like a lot of players with a different physical skill set let's say would not have survived his performance over the first two seasons and still be as loyally followed as he is well there's it's it's the um the theory of what frank could be and what should be versus the actual reality of what he is and that's that's very difficult i think i think we kind of seen that just in general for almost any young player, not just through like, you know, for the next, but just almost like any young player in professional sports. It's almost like, you know, we overvalue potential and what something could be rather than what's actually being placed on the court, like specific value that's produced on the court. And that's something that's been going on for to get those first round picks in. And we just like the idea of the first round pick. Now, you know, they don't become, they become almost valueless. Like once you pick someone that you don't like or, the player's not good or anything. Like, it doesn't really matter. It's, like, it's the theory of, like, hope and the selling point that, like, the future can itself be brighter because of what it could be and not what it actually is. Let me ask you this. Okay. When you think about these NBA writers who are, you know, copycatting Lowe or each other, um, do you think, A, do you think that's on any level conscious? And, B, do you think that is that, a negative quality or is that like you were saying before about the players, like an example of someone maybe overhyping potential, like I'm going to copy Zach Lowe, but I know I'm a great writer. So like if I just take what I can do and, 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 you know, mix it in with that, you know, potential, I know, do you think that goes on for people? I definitely think it's conscious because I know for just myself, speaking for myself is that I try to purposely avoid sounding like or even writing like Zach Lowe. So, like, I know for me, like, I'm kind of keeping, like, this mental block. Like, I, I, I read a lot of content, and I'm just He's like, right, head, I... Man. Huh? He's in your head. Yeah, like, it, like the whole thing, it's just the idea of just, like, not just writing, well, I'm always in a constant state of, like, it's an existential crisis for, like, what I'm writing. Like, like that's exactly, like, your little thread the other week is just how I feel every single day when I'm producing content. It's just like, should I actually be doing this? Is it actually good? Is it actually worth the time and investing if no one's actually, like, reading it or understanding what it is and all these sort of things? And then, like, I'm always like that and I'm always dreading it. And I'm always trying to push the boundaries of what I can do in, I don't want to say as a writer, because, like, I know I can do other things, but, like, when I'm in this MBA space, I, I feel like I'm being really shrunken down by, like, of a ceiling of what actually can be good NBA writing. Because it's almost like we saw, like, a peak in it before where, like, growing up when there wasn't as much information, like, the writers had the ability, like, you really, in order to draw the, the writer in, you really had to be creative and different. And that was something um, we saw, like, Bill Simmons actually really thrive with, the idea of, like, the fans' perspective on the Internet tying in different pop culture references that people understood and kind of tying it all in. Like, that's what made him really successful and really unique. And that's something we don't really see 
too much anymore. It's like almost become like, oh no, let's hokey. Look at, you know, you're just doing a Bill Simmons and, you know, impression if you're going to mention like Pulp Fiction or The Town or whatever in a, uh, in an article. But I, I do think people actually are like conscious of what they're doing in terms of like writing because for Zach Lowe, you saw Zach Lowe go from like Celtics blog to SI to like lead NBA writer on ESPN. Um, you even see someone like Kevin O'Connor at the, at the ringer, the Celtics blog to the ringer. And you even see a lot of writers kind of like taking that approach and knowing like, Hey, if I do it this way and I'm producing a lot of content, that's just like parody, not pa- like parroting like the current NBA zeitgeist of what should be said or what is the correct way to approach. I can be successful in this industry. I can get paid for writing about the NBA. So it's almost like there is a, almost like a model that people want to follow and they do it on purpose in the hopes that the breakouts be like, I want to be the next Bleacher Report writer and I'm going to get paid for this and I, I can quit my job and just watch NBA basketball games all day. Cause like that's what people are rewarded at. You know, that's what people are rewarding is that actual type of writing instead of something different and unique. Do you think that people enjoy it as a general type of writing? Is it is it like Hollywood where okay you see the same formula spread around, but like clearly people they they go for it, so they keep making it. Do you think that the audience is complicit with this kind of thing happening, or do you think that there's a disconnect between what is being produced and what people actually are seeking? That's a that's a really interesting question because I know for me, I don't think that I'm someone who speaks as like the majority. I definitely think I'm in the minority. And usually my answer to that is like, no, because like I already know what a lot of these conclusions are going to be because I can do the research on my own and come to these almost like same conclusions. Like I know how to query stats on NBA stats and basketball reference. I can watch the film for myself and be like, Oh, I can see how De'Aaron Fox is like good at like getting to the rim where I can see like, oh, Frank really has like no desire to like be aggressive at all. Like I can come to these sort of same conclusions with it. So my answer would be no, like I personally don't enjoy it, but clearly there's a reward for it. Like people still are going to these websites. They're sharing these articles on Twitter. Um, maybe there's an echo chamber in Twitter and the people who um, follow one another or just kind of speaking to themselves and doesn't really speak to the public at large. Um, maybe the people that I'm following who kind of agree with me were actually just a small minority who kind of have the same level of thinking. Like, I don't actually know, but they are clearly being rewarded. Like, people are visiting these websites. They're sharing these articles, and they're getting paid to do it, and they're getting more and more publicity for writing these type of articles. So I, I, I would say that the public is kind of complicit, and they're like, hey, we want these style of takes. We want this type of writing, and please produce more of it. Here's what I wonder about. There's a line in uh, the movie Network when um, the main character is is has been directed to do something. When, know, when, on you, TV. when you say network, are you talking about the Social Network or the 1976 movie Network? I'm taking it to the OG Network. Oh man, you're um, really dating yourself right now. I can say it's an incredible movie, one of the best. You should watch it. <laughs> the old man said, swinging from his porch. Um, but there's a line in it where um, someone's trying to explain to another character why you know, he, something on TV is going to sell, even though it seems ridiculous. And the character says, because it's on TV, stupid. And I wonder 
this idea of like audience, you know, accepting what appears to be kind of uniformizing content. Like there was a point where TV was so ubiquitous that like you just you watched TV because TV was on. That's what you did. Like what else were you going to do? And I wonder with there's so much content now, and the internet has become for so many people so ubiquitous in your day. Like you can, it's not even like a TV because you carry it with you everywhere that you go. Like in public, people are on toilets, like on their phone. Um, is it so ubiquitous that like okay, the reason people read it not because it's good or bad, that has nothing to do with it, just because I got to read something. That's uh, that's actually really interesting because you would think, right? Because you would think that because there's so many websites, there's so many people writing, there's so many producing content, is that there would be more diversity of thought, diversity of style, diversity of something. But you're right that there really isn't in the same, and people just be like, all right, I'm just going to go to ESPN, I'm just going to go to The Ringer, I'm just going to go to like Bleacher Report. Like those are my three websites, and that's where I'm going to get all my information from. And it's really interesting. And like that's it. Like, and there you go. And that's actually really, but that's. I, I don't think paradox is the right word, but it's almost like now paradox is the right word. It seems really strange the idea that like the internet is so large and there's so many people writing that there should, in theory, then be more thought, but there isn't more thought and there isn't more diversity. And it's the same people going to the same websites producing the same content over and over again. Like there isn't much in it. So that almost, that almost goes back to the same question. Like what's actually causing this then? Is, is it just like, because that's, that's the way it is. It's almost like a, um, it's like, I don't even know. I, I can't even think right now because it's so late. And I, but it's like, is it a self, <laughs> is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is that what I'm, is that what I'm looking for? I think it's the nature of excess. Um, McLuhan called it narrow casting. That like when TV got more and more channels, it didn't mean you got more and more content. You just literally got more and more channels. And I think whenever there's an oversaturation of options, like you ever have a period of time and I, when I finished my MFA, a lot of my writer friends hit this moment once and I did too. Like, you get done with school and you are now theoretically completely, all those fictions that like you were going to get to and like, but you had classes and you had, you know, you're a graduate assistant and like you have to, all the things going on. But now that you finally are done and your thesis is done, you have this infinitude of space and time to work on your piece. Like theoretically, now there are no boundaries. And so you have all the time to write and you will and everybody paralyzes and everybody freezes, and almost everybody I know couldn't write for, like, a while, fiction-wise, out of an MFA because they were drowning in the opportunity to write, and and it was a really alien sensation. Um, I wonder if that same thing happens for what you're talking about, where just eventually there's such oversaturation that, like, as a, as a defense, like, you kind of have to psychically withdraw um, and just cut a bunch of it out because, my God, that uh, that could be something to it. Um, the idea of like there's a amount of like free time and there's so much information, there's so many different things you can get to. You just kind of become paralyzed with it. Um, I know that happens to me a lot during the uh, during the summertime because in theory, like I don't have to watch like the Knicks lose by ten with a fake, you know, fourth <laughs> quarter comeback for uh, for about like six months during the year. So it's like, oh, I have the the whole summer to be like, I'm gonna watch this, I'm gonna analyze this, I'm gonna do all these different things. And I know for myself, I set up all that. Like I was going to be like, all right, I'm going to, 
fix the stats I created last year, kind of improve the methodology. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do all these things. And then it's just like, like life kind of hits you. And you're just like, oh, do I actually start it this way? Do I start it that way? Um, yeah, and it could be then the idea of like, all right, since I just need to produce something, I'm just going to produce something generic just to get the uh, the juices flowing. But, yeah, I mean, that could be a play into it. Um, another thing just kind of thinking about it since we're actually on a podcast is how much do you think podcasting idea of just um, not just writers, but, you know, mainly like writers being able to talk their thoughts out and just kind of articulate in audio form instead of people actually reading. Cause so many people now are just like on the go. I mean, I'm constantly listening to like music podcasts and all these in like audio books, like on my commute to work back and forth. I don't really have like have too much time just to sit down and be like, all right, I'm going to read like a 15 minute article. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how, how much does uh you think probably like podcasting in and of itself becoming this huge boom. Another thing, oversaturation, oversaturation, like there's already like five Nick's podcasts out there. And we're just like one of like, you know, like five probably saying the same old takes too. So, yeah, I think that pods are, I think that they will cancel out a certain amount of writing. I think writing will evolve and respond. It depends to what degree podcasting becomes um, more and more prevalent. I think that writing will, will evolve in reaction to it. Um, I think there's always going to be an audience for the written word um, and for what writing is. I I, I don't like um, I don't like hearing my favorite writers usually on podcasts because um, and and hopefully anyone who's listening to me is not having this experience right now. But <laughs> I hate I hate falling for somebody's voice on the page. And everybody knows, like, how, how someone writes has nothing to do with who they are. But I don't like being reminded of that. Like, um, in the larger question that you're asking, I think that um, the convenience factor, I think, will matter to an extent. But I think, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to cause any kind of significant interplay. Because I think the fact is that there's always... Um, people almost rhythmically alternate between wanting to read something and wanting to hear something. And I think that the more significant fact is going to be the the constancy of access that you have to either. Um, I don't think that podcasting is going to like threaten sports writing. And I don't think podcasting is going to go away. I think it's just a, it's a modern word for radio um, with all the little different takes that come with it. But um I think that people will kind of, you know, like a buffet, they'll pick and choose which one they want when they want. I mean, I would, I would definitely hope so. Um, yeah, so just kind of really sad the idea of podcasting, just kind of replacing almost like everything. It's like, all right, I'm just going to get all my takes from the podcast. I'm not going to read anything. There's going to be no style to it. Yeah, that would be, that'd be uh, sad. Um, I would the think Fox so. Sports that tried to pull that a couple years ago. There was some major sports site that somebody took over and, and their like you know editorial whatever and and made a whole push for. I think it was Fox. That does sound familiar. Fox. I remember they were doing. I think it was Fox. The idea of like we're going to take away the articles and we're just going to give video versions of the articles. It did, not go, it did not go well. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a really good example because no, you're right. Because I one thing I know is that if I'm on the internet and I'm trying to get information. The last thing I want to see is a video of 
of the article. It's, it's the worst, especially when you have like the news articles. I think CNN is really guilty of this. The idea of like they have the article, then they have the video that like autoplays and prevents you from like reading the article and it just like repeats the article and it doesn't really give you anything. It's, it's the absolute worst. I hate that. I hate that so much. SI.com is all about that. Like, um, they stood off from CNN, but they both kept that same annoying autoplay thing. Yeah, I, I don't even know the last time I actually went on SI to actually read anything. <laughs> yeah, the screen is they give you like three lines of text and like eight ads. Yeah, that's just uh, that's just crazy. Yeah, I, I don't I don't even know who even writes for SI. I think it's just like Andrew Sharp. Like that's the only person like I know. That's kind of crazy. Even just SI, they used to be like the biggest place for sports writing. And yeah. I couldn't even tell you anyone who even, like, like I said, I couldn't, maybe the, like, one person. I, I know Andrew Sharp does because I listen to his podcast, but, man, talk about a, uh, talk about a turn for the, uh, turn for the worst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're taking a dive. Um, I do want to mention, uh, not mention, I do want to ask you, just so we're talking about, like, you know, writing as a whole and, you know, to kind of, like, the conceptual, like, you know, big picture for, like, writing. How, how do you feel, like, how the, um, how the Knicks are written about and how they're covered at uh, at large. Do you think there's been sort of like a way, like a shifting way that they've been like covered due to the way, like the shifting nature of the sports content? Or do you think it's just kind of been the same for, you know, since whenever? I think there's a far better balance than there used to be because um, just the democratization of voices like that can cover the team better reflects, I think, the fan base itself like so for years like I can date myself some more like I would read the post of the daily news like late 80s early 90s and you had um, Peter Vesey and Mitch Lawrence and like and and especially if you didn't live in the city like which I didn't and you followed the Knicks like I was at least lucky to live in a place and on Sundays you could get the New York City paper so I would wait every week and like you got that and that was the voice and like that was your entire keyhole to see, like, into that world. And I think then the next thing that comes was sports radio, but I think that because sports radio is a medium that, like, responds to, like, volume and heat, um, it's like TV, like cable, you know, political TV. Like, you just get extremes because that's what sells in that time period. I think what's really great now as far as Nick writing goes is for the rational I, – I think there's all kinds of Nick fans, like – there are the kind of Nick fans who like really do believe that if they signed Carmelo right now, they would make the playoffs because they love Carmelo that much. And there are the ones who like miss Porzingis and there are the ones who just want to see a title. And there are the ones who only follow the team for the comedy. And there are the ones who are the diehards. And you have now enough representation that I feel like all those people can get that. Like when the Porzingis trade went down in the past, like all you're going to do is get, you know, in the paper, one writer's point of view, and sports radio every first time, long time, is going to complain about it. And now, I like I had a piece the next day about why actually I was fine with the deal, and there were a number of readers who were like, just expressed gratitude to have access to a piece that wasn't the national perspective. LOL, Knicks. Like, I think that's a major win for Knicks fans, like this this explosion of media and coverage, because the city itself is so metropolitan that I think the only way you can accurately reflect the team is coverage that's like that. 
Um, whether that works the same for every other team, I don't know, because I feel like some markets are probably more like, homogenized and homer-driven, um, and they like it that way. But I think for, for New York and for Nick fans, um, I think it's awesome that it is the way that it is now. No, but I, I agree. It's um, it's just really refreshing now because I know for me, I didn't really read too much um, Nick stuff growing up. I just, I mainly got like sports talk radio from it. It was just always, um, you know, Mike and the Mad Dog. And then it became like the Michael K show when I had, when like ESPN radio really blew up, especially when I had like, you know, when I got my first car, just watching, uh, just listening to ESPN radio all the time. So yeah, I definitely think now that, um, more people are writing, more people have different perspectives. And honestly, just being able to uh, be thankful that Christoph Porzingis isn't on the uh, Knicks anymore is um, <laughs> is an absolute blessing. I mean, you, you can't have guys who are being accused of rape and having the FBI get involved for um, extortion and all that, and then he's getting beat up in Latvia by, like, a bunch of Russians, and his head is bleeding, and he can't fight for himself. You know, you can't have that guy on your team. I, I'm sorry, you can't have that guy. And he could be... He's like the perfect player for the Dallas Mavericks. I, he really is. He just embodies everything that they uh, that they want as a culture and as a team, and especially like how Mark Cuban is as a human being. So I'm happy. I'm really happy that he's on the, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. So uh, that's my uh, my weekly shot at a uh, disgusting Mark Cuban. And uh, it was really <laughs> strong. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, I I just can't stand. I I, I can't stand Mark Cuban. I I really can't. Just and also like. The, the hypocrisy, I don't know if it's hypocrisy, but like the way people like talk about him, like they don't really like really go into it. You know what I'm saying? Like James Dolan, for example, like James Dolan like sucks. We all know that. He's a crappy human being. He's, you know, he was him and his team and Isaiah Thomas were found, you know, um, liable in the Nuka Brown Sanders, you know, sexual harassment case. Like we're not, we're talking about like scumbags and scumbags, but like Mark Cuban is like, arguably worse in terms of, like, setting a culture for an organization and worse in terms of, like, business practice and all these sort of things. And he doesn't get, like, any of the same scrutiny that, like, James Dolan does. And it's like, why is that the case? Because, like, he's, like, the fun tech guy. It's just, like, it's just absolutely ridiculous to me that, like, Mm -hmm. only, like, like, certain owners get, like, blasted and other owners don't. Like, we're talking about, like, old, rich, like, disgusting white people. Like, they all fucking suck. Like, the idea that, like, some of them are worse than others, is is beyond me. That media friendliness will get you very far. Yeah, it, it, it really is, especially when you have, um, same thing, like, he, there's a photo with uh, with Cuban, and who's the guy from uh, Breitbart that with the disgusting face, and he was on Trump's, like, cabinet or, like, special advisor? Do you know who I'm talking about? He was on, he was on what? No, the, you know that, like, guy who was, like, the editor-in-chief of, like, Breitbart, and then, like, Trump had him as, like, you know, Oh, Bannon. Steve Bannon. Bannon. Steve Bannon. There you go. Like, Mark Cuban was, like, having, like, dinner with him. Like, yeah. like what the hell is, like, what the hell is that? Like, that's just absolutely insane to me. To, and, like, no no one's slamming him for that. I have to tell you that years ago there was a program, I think it was on Fox, it was, like, a, like their, you know, their version of, like, um, Yankeeography, where, like, they do, like, a little bio of a, someone in sports, and they were doing Cuban. And they spoke to Cuban. He went to Indiana University, and... He was like laughing about um, how he like plagiarized it, like one of his papers. And I just to tell you, as a writing professor, like I knew in that moment this guy was a dick. Like I knew in that moment, like nobody should trust this man. And history continues to bear me out. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Like it just everything he does, it just it just proves the point that he's just awful. But no, he's just he's nice to NBA writers. He's he's friendly. He brings them into like you know the training facilities, and it's just like, oh look, go ahead, write about what you want. And it's just it's insane to me. Yeah. yeah so I think that may be a good place to uh <laughs> to end this uh the episode, just <laughs> shitting on Mark Cuban and um. Doing that, I think that's a that's a good place, especially now. It's uh we're recording this kind of late, and it's, I think it's been a long week for uh for both of us. Um, Professor, what do you have to uh what do you have to plug for? It could be it could be what you're writing, it could be something you're reading, something you're watching. It, it could literally be anything. Um, we've got a so the next the August posting and toasting mailbag will come out next week. There have been many good questions so far both Nick-related and just straight-up silliness. Um, I'm going to be starting, also hopefully next week, um, a new series at Posting and Toasting where we do game recaps of like prior, usually historically significant games in Nick history. Um, so instead of your usual recap of last night's... Um, oh my God, I can't even think of a, of a, of a Nick now. Some poor player's... 14 point effort and a loss like you can actually relive <laughs> good old times um, the first one is going to be a recap of game one of the 92 Knicks Bulls um, conference semifinals which the Knicks pulled a big upset and won on the road the game where Patrick Ewing busted out the one and only crossover of his career taking Bill Cartwright baseline and dunking it on him um, so that's exciting and what am I watching um I'm rewatching Game of Thrones, but I'm going to stop before I get to the end of season eight because I want to just remember it as I enjoyed it. I've really been struck at like it really was that good for a while, so good for a while, and then I'm going to have to stop. Yeah, I have to be in the minority with you on that. I never thought the show was that good. I, I, I know, no? that, you know, no. I mean, it's, I know people always were like, "Oh my god, the writing is absolutely incredible," and I thought it was fine. I thought it was good, but I never really thought Game of Thrones was ever on the level of like. The Sopranos, The Wire, uh, Twilight Zone, anything along those lines. It, it, it was better. Don't get me wrong. Like, the earlier seasons were definitely better than uh, than this past Season 8. But I also enjoyed Season 8 more than a lot of people because there were, you know, tons of dragons, you know, blowing yeah. it up and fighting. So that that always warms my heart is seeing that stuff. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it as much as the consensus seemed to be, but I was definitely disappointed I think just by, like, why the hell did you do ten seasons, ten episodes, and then do seven and six? Like, just, why do that? Because, you know, these writers, they're, you know, was it D&B? I don't even know what the hell it was. It? I, I don't even know yeah. what it was. They're, yeah, D&D. Yeah, D&D, they're, they're really not good. That, that's really what it comes down to, just the idea of, like, they didn't have Martin's, um, like, source anymore. So they're like, oh, yeah, we can do it. And, like, no, you can't. Like, the reason why it was good because you had, you know, Martin Source. And then the idea of, like, oh, HBO is going to give us ten seasons. Don't worry, guys. We're going to handle everything in six episodes. And it's like, no, you don't end a series that's been so culturally significant for so many years on, like, an abbreviated season that wasn't that good. Like, just absolutely disgraceful. It, uh. It really was. And, uh, I'm really excited for this, uh, the game recap stuff that you're, you're doing historically because I didn't watch these games. Like, I have, I have no, absolutely no memory of, like, 
Nick teams before, like, Stefan Marbury and uh, Isaiah Thomas. Oh, my God, you poor thing. But uh, I also didn't, like, watch it. Like, that was also, like, a thing. Like, I grew up watching baseball. Like, you mentioned Yankeeography. Like, I was a big Yankee fan. You know, the greatest baseball team to ever exist. The, the only <laughs> um, the only baseball team that matters in New York City. I, I'm That's probably the greatest team of the 20th century, undoubtedly. And, and the 21st century and the 22nd century and all this sort of thing. I'm probably angering so many of my, you know, of the listeners right now who are, who are Mets fans. They're like, what are you talking about? The Mets have made it to the World Series and, uh, all that sort of stuff. But my lasting memory of the Mets is, uh, Carlos Beltran looking at a, uh, a pitch to end the series was, ooh, just beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful. I love a curveball. Yeah, that was a curveball by, uh, was it Adam Wainwright? Was that it? When, uh, when, yep. yeah, when, when, Wainwright. Wainwright, when he, uh, he was closing, that was, it's yep. like, that's, uh, that's rough. But, uh, yeah, so I'm very, really excited for that. I'll definitely check out, uh, Miranda's mailbag thing, cause your first paragraph in that mailbag launch is, I, I find it funny, but like, in a really, in like, a weird way, this idea that you specifically wrote that as a first paragraph was so funny. And I'm like, wow, he really went there on an introduction to a mailbag. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's so brilliant. Like it's to, beautiful. You, you like to slip it in when no one's looking. Yeah, no, that's exactly why I liked it. Because I'm like, oh, okay, Miranda's mailbag. I'm going to see what's uh, in it. And I was like, oh, was like, this is how we're starting this off. And I'm like, this is this is what I want out of uh, NBA content. Um, right. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't think I have anything to plug. Um, I'm going to plug the Posting and Toasting show. It's hosted by Drew Steele and Ashwin Ramnath. And sometimes Budum Budum, sometimes Matthew Miranda, sometimes Jonathan Macri. So download that at the, uh, at Apple. I, I don't know if we're on anywhere else. Um, I'll keep trying to make that happen, guys. If you're like Android users and only use like Google Play, I'll try to do that. Um, I wish I had something else to, uh, to plug in terms of like watching. Like I'm not really watching anything, which is, uh, which is kind of sad. Like, I don't, there's no movies out that you want to go see. I want to see Hobbs and Shaw. Like, that's what I really want to see. Because Are you a fan has, of that whole franchise? Oh, am I a fan? It's probably the greatest franchise in movie history. It's the Yankees of Hollywood? Mm, that's tough. No, they're not the Yankees of, uh, of Hollywood. They're like Jordan's Bulls of, uh, of okay. Hollywood. Like concentrated greatness. Yeah, like concentrated, because like, yeah, because it's only like those specific movies, and like that's it. And it's it's a masterpiece. Do you not like them? I probably have not seen any of them. You haven't seen any of them? I doubt it. Oh man, you gotta watch. You gotta watch the first one, Fast and Furious. It's a it's basically Point Break with uh with race cars, not race cars, but like street cars. It's yeah. it's absolutely wonderful. Um, Fast Five is probably one of the top five greatest action movies of all time, and I will. And it's like it's up there with the. Uh, I don't even know what the top five action movies of all time would be. It's really <laughs> tough. Like you have, yeah, Fast Five. You have Face Off. You have, um, I would guess, one of the Mission Impossible's would have to be up there. Um, National Treasure is definitely up there in the conversation for great action movies. Um. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Of, am I Nicolas missing? Nicolas Cage is strong in you. Oh, Nick, Nicolas Cage is um, the greatest American thespian to ever live. <laughs> like, there's a re- like if you if you actually follow if you follow the posting and toasting 
show's podcast, that posting show, you'll see the banner is um of Nicolas Cage in Face Off. Yes, like, I did. I did. See, I saw that and was, was terrified. Yeah, like it's we are very pro Nicolas Cage on this podcast, and we're very pro Face Off on this podcast. So that's like you know what? That's what I'm gonna plug. Go watch Face Off right now. <laughs> <laughs> like. Don't even bother listening to this episode right now. Just go watch Face Off. Stop it right then now. Stop it. It. Yeah, stop the episode right now. Go watch Face Off and come back and listen to, like, the final couple seconds of it. Um, Professor, I'm very happy that you came, you came on the, uh, the show. You're someone who's been with the uh, the website and been, like, the uh, the driving soul of it for so long that, like, you had to be on the Posting Toasting show. Like, you are Posting Toasting. So, Thank you for being on the uh, the episode. I really dug it. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, that's gonna be that's gonna be it for us. And uh, catch you till uh, next week. Bye.